You are listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud, conversations about trauma and healing from two women who are doing the work. My name is Jeremiah Jones, and I'm the producer of this podcast. In today's episode, Candace and Cher further the conversation on what it means to heal from self-betrayal. The first step is naming the truth of our correct situation with just one person. Listen in as Candace and Cher talk about why this is often a very difficult step to take, but once taken with a safe person, can be life-changing. Hi, Cher. Hey, Candace. Good to see you. Good to see you today, too. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation that we started last week on three ways or three steps that we can take to end self-betrayal. And last week, we looked at step number one, which is just naming the truth or being aware of what our current situation really is not hiding, pretending, performing, but just really naming the truth about our current situation. And step two was just taking a time, taking a season to understand and learn about what dysregulation is. And if you listen to last week, you will understand how important that is. We, we have to understand what's going on in our body. And then step three, even though it's step three, it's really where we start to gain traction in our healing when we slow down. The nature of trauma, as we've often said, is too much, too fast, too soon. So slowing down. But what we wanted to do today was just take a deeper dive into step one, where we're going to look at why is it so important to name the truth and to be honest? And why is that so hard, Cher? So we're really talking about being honest about how traumatic our story really is and being honest about how deep the harm actually goes into our lives, body, soul, and spirit. And then how that traumatic harm actually continues to really influence a lot of the aspects of our life, even today, particularly our relationships. And so we talked about a few things about what, what makes it hard to be honest. And one of the things that makes it really hard to be honest is that when we're talking about our complex childhood harm, there's just a ton of emotional pain wrapped around this topic and all of its you know multitude of facets. That emotional pain, and a lot of times we're not even that consciously aware of it, but that emotional pain, the minute we get close to that, everything in our body and our brain says, this is not a safe topic and we need to get away from this as quickly as possible. So the emotional pain can really sideline us. What else do you want to say about that? Well, I want to say that we had to find ways to numb and disassociate or deny and minimize to not feel that pain. And so in order to heal, we have to begin feeling the pain in a titrated way. This is why we go slow. The emotional pain is there, but we go slow. You know, I, I thought of an analogy really quick. For a woman to give birth to something new, she has to go through some pain. Of course, we may say this when we're in the pain, like, actually, I did say this. I don't think I can do this. And my husband's like, yes, you can. And yes, you will. And so we want to say that with the healing of childhood trauma, you can do this. It's going to hurt like hell emotionally. You're not going to be alone, 
but there's going to be something of beauty birthed for you in your healing and it's worth it. Yeah. I love the words that you said, you're not going to be alone. And I think that is what is so key and essential. Like we cannot heal in isolation. We can do a lot of our own work. We can read books. We can get educated. We can do our journaling. We can do all of these things. But when we were harmed, we were isolated and we were alone and we were just lost in that. And there is so much emotional pain around just the loneliness of our trauma. As we step toward healing, we don't do it in isolation. We connect with others that can help us along this path. I want to just name something else that I think makes being honest really hard. And that is this whole topic of loyalty and the fear that we carry of breaking loyalty. What do you think about that? Well, I think that it's very real because children actually want to have loyalty and want to be able to honor their parents. They have a God-given makeup of wanting to have someone safe that they trust. And when that happens, it's wonderful and beautiful. But when it doesn't happen, there are still messages that you eventually receive, whether it's from your abuser or society that you know, family first, or it's disloyal to talk about the truth. There's a lot there as an adult, if you're still holding the message that to be honest means that you're disloyal and and you're bad. It's complex for every person that is being drawn into healing. Yeah. You've said this many times, and I want to say it again. That doesn't mean that you have to post it or go tell everyone. It just starts with writing your story out and then finding one person. I agree. I think that's so important to keep re-emphasizing is that this isn't about making statements publicly. Maybe eventually you will. But when you're starting, this is done in a very private, protected, safe environment where, and, and this is really important. We're going to talk about that in a moment talking about or or bringing this honesty into a space where it is safe and with safe people because we were not safe when we were harmed. And so now if we're breaking the loyalty and the demands to loyalty or, and I will say the demands to silence, to never tell anyone what happened to us. It's not really loyalty anyway. It's really a power structure. And we've talked about that before. I'd like us to move on to step number two, or to our second point today, and that is in order to be honest about the depth of our harm and how it's affecting our, our lives, even in our relationships and in our, the struggles that we're experiencing today, in order to be honest, we have to find safe people. And I know we touched on this a little bit last week, Candice, but how do we find safe people? Who are safe people? Yeah, I want to say through lots of trial and error, <laughs> and I think that's many people's story. They have wanted to find safe people, but maybe didn't even know what a safe person was. And so we want to say that a safe person isn't a perfect person. Yeah. It's not even a person that you wouldn't have rupture and repair with. 
it's not even always a therapist, although it could be a therapist or a coach or a, a minister, but it is a person that is doing their own work. They've done their own work and they have a level of understanding on complex childhood trauma that will allow them to show up with you with deep kindness, curiosity, passion, and, and is really out to help you silence the voice of shame. Yeah, so important. And I think one other thing that you mentioned earlier was when a person has done their own work and is doing, is in the ongoing doing their own work, but they actually have the capacity to hold other stories of harm in a way that people do not have that capacity if they have not done their own work. One of the things that we have said over and over and that we learned in our training is that you can only take another person as far as you have gone yourself. And so a safe person is someone who has gone further with their own stories of harm and their own healing journey than you have gone. That is the person that will be able to hold the horror of the stories that you will need to bring eventually. Or if they can't, they will help you link up with somebody else that can. But it has to be someone who can hold, who you can trust that they can actually hold the horror of the stories that you will need to share. Yeah. And I want to mention that titles don't necessarily equate safety. So do an interview as the one seeking help. You can do an interview. You can ask questions about, you know, and sometimes you go into it knowing like when I reached out to my story coach, I already knew she had done that. But if you're just reaching out to someone that has a specific title or a specific role, and maybe we can do a specific episode on this on, you know, how to interview your coach or therapist. Yeah, so good. Another question that I have about this topic of choosing a safe person is understanding that the fact is, is that we often choose people who are not safe. And I know for myself, I was really searching for help. And I did turn to a few people that really were not, they hadn't done their own work. They didn't have the capacity to really hold my stories or to help me make progress and ended up really bringing even more hurt because of the responses that they, they gave to me. But why is it that we often choose people who are not safe? Well, we are always looking for the things that we didn't get. We, we have a hunger inside of us and we also have a desire to resolve that pain, which we have named a problem, right? I have this problem and I need a solution. And oftentimes we gravitate towards someone that feels familiar to that early caregiver, parental figure who you're in trauma with. I will just say this, and this is a loaded topic. We can go back to it later, but but we end up in another trauma bond. Mm. And so we we have to know our patterns. We have to be aware of these things. And, and you could just reach out to a coach or a therapist that you don't know anything about them and they can help you work through that. But for historically in our relationships, when we keep moving towards the same friend or the same partner, 
we are moving towards what will keep us in a pattern of familiarity because we will choose the familiar over the unknown at great cost to our emotional, spiritual well-being and our bodies. And I'm I'm curious about your term trauma bond and that we can we can tend to repeat that scenario of going from person to person and establishing that trauma bond. But what do you mean by that? What what do you mean when you say a trauma bond? Well, a trauma bond is getting into a a connection with someone that feels familiar. So familiar is usually something that feels good because it's familiar. We know what to do in those spaces. But oftentimes, not always, but that person also has a part. Like I said, we can do a whole episode on this and we probably should. But there are parts of us that are being drawn, but they're young, wounded, and often immature parts Mm -hmm. that become connected. Like, I need you, you need me, you know, can get into obsessive, compulsive. It can get into all kinds of messes. We don't do that purposely. We do it unconsciously. And we often do it with a good heart and desire. It's just after a while. And a lot of times we don't discover this until we're older, although there's a whole generation coming up that are trying to get this figured out sooner than their parents did. We're like, okay, this isn't working for me anymore. And, and we start getting the help that we need. Yeah, it's so good. And I think it's, it's causing me to think a lot about when we see dysregulation in our current relationships, when we see kind of these repeated patterns of dysregulation, it's really a good moment to, to stop and, and analyze a little bit like, how is this dysregulation or the way that this is triggering me? How is this similar to how I was dysregulated? in some of my key relationships as a child. And when we can begin to recognize that, that's a huge clue, I think, in helping us understand how we're stuck in kind of these repeat styles of relationships where we just get involved with the same type of person over and over and over, even though it brings a lot of pain to our lives. Oh, yeah. And which really leads us to our next step, because we typically won't get out of that until we ask for help. There is some work we can do on our own, but we are wounded in relationship and we will heal in relationship. But what is it that can be super, super hard to ask for help? I think it's, and this is so subconscious, but I think so often as children, we did ask for help. And help was not available or help did not come. Or we were even punished, perhaps, for exposing something that was awful that was going on. And so when that happens, when we are a child, it's very easy to make a vow. I will not ask for help again. I will figure this out for myself. I will numb it or I will, you know, all of the coping mechanisms. But We can't even actually make that vow of, I will never ask for help again. And we don't even recognize the power of that kind of a vow, which was made in child survival strategies. And yet it can have power in our lives far into the future, where even when we are desperately needing to ask for help, we just won't ask for help. 
Yeah. So the person that we're going to, the repentant, that they are safe and have an understanding will know to go so slow yeah. in, in building trust, building safety. It's for some people asking for help is a trigger because they were punished for that. And so if we don't understand that, we we will re-traumatize people. Yeah. We absolutely. will re-traumatize them. We we need to offer deep understanding. We can never flippantly say, well, why aren't you just asking for help? So true. And it's easy to say that, and but so difficult to do. And I think another aspect of why asking for, for help is also really hard is because of shame. That mm-hmm. when I recognize that here I am an adult, I function as an adult, I do adult things in my life, and yet here's an area where I just can't figure it out. It's a, it's, it's, it causes me a lot of pain in my life and I've tried to resolve it or I've tried to talk about it or I've tried this and I've tried that and I just can't figure it out. There can be a lot of shame of the accusations that come against us that say, well, what's wrong with me that I can't even figure this out? Or why is it that other people seem to be fine, but this is so such a huge problem for me? So I think that voice of shame can really have a very powerful effect. Yeah. And I've noticed that that grows with age. I think I know for me, you know, the temptation to continue to hide at times was this thought of how can you still need help? Well, I hadn't truly gotten to the deep excavation of what the source of the problem was. What a beautiful thing when we can kind of just take a deep breath and say, ah, this is just a journey. There's layer upon layer upon layer. And even being able to look back and kind of bless the ways that we've had to start looking deeper so mm-hmm. we can heal. Yeah. And then the blessing when you have somebody who is helping you look and helping you understand. And I know I've said this before on the podcast, but I wanted to say it again. And that is that asking for help is very hard for me. When I started my first story group, I knew that it was coming. The date was there. The The opportunity was in front of me. I had the money to do it, all these things, but I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And it was with some level of agony that I finally sent in my application and said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And then to see the way that my life has been so dramatically changed because of that, but asking for help in that kind of a context was just, there was agony there. And so it's, it's just so real. Yeah. I'm just thinking of our listeners who have asked for help. They're trying to decide if they can ask for help. They're in the fear of thinking they'll never ask for help. I just want to say, try to create some space and just breathe and maybe journal a little bit about what's it like for you to ask for help and just get it out on paper for now. Mm, So good, Candice. Yeah, so good. And next week, we're going to tackle a little deeper dive into, we're going to go back into talking about step two, which is dysregulation. Yeah, that'll be really good. I look forward to talking further with you about that. Yeah, me too, friend. Love you. Love you too. 
Thank you for listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to suggested resources and social media. Like, subscribe, and follow to keep up with our weekly content. And if you don't mind, take a moment to rate and review us. Your feedback is extremely valuable and contributes to the success of this podcast. One last thing, if you have found this podcast helpful in any way, or if you have questions on how to take the next steps on your healing journey, please reach out to us via email at CandiceShare at gmail.com. That's K-A-N-D-A-C-E-S-H-E-R at gmail.com. Music was created by Kayla Paxton, and our sound engineer is Jeremiah Jones of Audit Story LLC. We welcome you to join us for more conversations soon. Take care.